Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews donors, thought leaders, and professionals in the field of fundraising. This week's episode is steeped in data, and it's not because of me. It's all thanks to Patrick Schmidt, co-CEO of Free Will. I ask Patrick about bequests, effective stock giving, crypto, he tells us about Ethereum, which is a type of crypto, QCDs, and he shares some data points on inheritance and millennial giving trends. This conversation is fast-paced, exciting, and informative, but perhaps my favorite is that it's not a bunch of data points. Patrick puts everything he's saying into context as we think about our donors and the bigger picture of the way they are most interested in making their gifts and their impact. Patrick Schmidt is co-CEO of Free Will, which he and fellow Free Will co-CEO Jenny Xia founded at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business in 2016. Free Will's charitable giving platform makes it easier for nonprofit fundraising teams to unlock transformational gifts, and to date has generated over $6.6 billion in new gift commitments for thousands of nonprofit organizations. Patrick hosts Free Will's popular webinar series, educating thousands of nonprofit fundraising professionals each month about planned and non-cash giving strategies. Before Free Will, Patrick was the head of innovation at Change.org, where he helped grow the organization to 100 million users in four years. Prior to that, he ran email marketing for President Obama and served as campaign director for MoveOn.org. Let's get started. Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand, original series and podcast, all created with fundraisers in mind. We're thrilled to feature the development debrief on Evertrue Studios Podcast Network. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the debrief. Great to see you, Catherine. This is a crazy full circle moment because I remember you coming into the Office of Alumni and Development at Columbia years ago before the pandemic, which might as well have been, have been decades ago. And I know a lot has changed since then. So I don't know if you remember where you were at that point, starting up the company, but tell us what the last couple of years have been like and what's been the most surprising. Well, it's a great question and it's great to see you again. And do you remember that meeting? Uh, biggest shift is that I used to wear dress pants to in-person meetings a lot more than I did during the pandemic <laughs> and afterwards. Free Will is now almost six years old. And, and so we would have met uh, nearly three or four years ago. And a couple of things have happened at the same time. I mean, one is we're moving more and more into this idea of the great wealth transfer, which we can talk about more later. But the idea that $70 trillion will be passed on over the next 20 years as baby boomers age is, you know, probably the most important moment for philanthropy in the history of the world. And so that's, we're really on the precipice of that. And that, that's one big thing. Um, two is obviously COVID happened. And for Free Will and our team, it meant we went from having this cute office in New York City where we all saw each other every day to being scattered across not quite 50 states, but all around the United States and working remotely. And, and that's been a joy and a challenge at different times. It certainly shifted the way that people do plan giving and fundraising as 
know, the whole world has gone online in a relatively short amount of time. And then third, it's just been it's just been a joy to meet more folks like you, like folks on our team, and you know we learn something new every single day. And so excited to share a little bit about uh, what we've learned with you and your listeners. And the team has grown significantly. One of my former colleagues from Columbia is now on your team, Brenna. Uh, how big are you now? Love Brenna. Um, we are now 220-ish folks, wow. give or take a few. So I know some folks started uh, yesterday, and so I've lost count. But it's a really <laughs> good, thoughtful, diverse, smart, caring team. And we are just feel so lucky to be part of it. So it's quite the size. It is so impressive that you have started this company and built it from the ground. We'll talk a little bit more about, you know, scalability and sustainability and those kinds of things. But before we do, let's hear about the inspiration behind free will. It's such a good idea. And I think I wanted to comment on your point about the pandemic. I really think it forced a lot of people to think about their legacies. And so it just feels like the timing is spot on, but Give us your origin story. It's a it's a few things. So I'll be brief. The first is that I was lucky enough to help run email fundraising for President Obama after the first election, so 2009, 2010. And in that world, building on a bunch of the work the campaign had done, we just put so much blood, sweat, and tears into making it really easy for people to give $15 at a time. I mean, just endless experiments and efforts and things like that. And so that's been a big part of my career and, and thinking about how to make it really easy to give. The second thing that happened is I was an early employee at a company called change.org. And it was the first company I'd ever been a part of. I'd, like you, I'd been mostly in nonprofits. I came in as employee 10 and three and a half years later, when I left, we were 300 people from all around the world. And I realized that the, the speed of startups actually creates a really big opportunity for social good that I hadn't really internalized before that. And then the third thing is I was doing my will many years later and was thinking about charitable giving, found the whole process to be a bit challenging and painful. And it really set off light bulbs hearkening back to those Obama years where my big question was, why is it so hard to give away $10,000 or $50,000 or for some people a million dollars when it, we make it so easy to give $15? That doesn't really make sense if you care about outcomes. And so I had the idea for free will, did a little bit of research, wasn't feeling very confident about starting a company, and then I was at Stanford as a grad student and I met my my now friend and dear co-founder, Jenny Xia, now Jenny Xia Spradling, and became much more confident in our ability together to start free will. And Jenny's just the smartest person I've ever encountered. And so it's a delight to work with her every day. I love hearing how succinctly the building blocks add onto each other. And I'm sure you've told, you've answered that question in many different ways over the years, but it just makes so much sense. And I agree that I think as we look into major giving and higher level giving, I think the answer we often give is it's bespoke, it's a one-off, it's a unique situation. And oftentimes that is true. But the idea of having systems around bigger gifts, I think is very daunting to a lot of fundraisers. And so I think it's very cool that you have taken this on. And I will add to that a lot of the work I did when I was at Columbia was around plan giving. And we realized, I think with a lot of other institutions that it's a huge, huge opportunity and an area that just hasn't been deeply explored prior to the last five to 10 years. I think that's right, Catherine. And one of the things that we've seen is 
Well, well, two things. One is it's easy to miss how large these gifts are. So there's some IRS research from a bunch of years ago that pointed to the idea that a typical bequest, which is a gift in a will or trust, is something like three times someone's entire lifetime charitable gift. I believe three that. times larger. And yeah. so if you're not getting bequests, you're cutting off 75% of this person's total giving. The second thing is a little bit of what you said that really anyone can make a bequest. And sometimes planned giving lives in major giving. So it has all the same habits. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, most people can't endow a building at, at Columbia, right? It's just not, no one, people don't have the capacity and, and some people do. And you want to have really bespoke situations with those folks. But, but literally everyone needs an estate plan. You know, a very large portion of your donors, especially older ones, will be homeowners, which is an enormous source of wealth. And therefore, almost everyone can be a planned giving donor. And so it's this, it's not the top of the pyramid for a lot of people. It's, it's this whole other option where, you know, some of the folks who are giving you 10 bucks a, a month or hundred bucks a year or 20 bucks a year are actually candidates to leave you a quarter million dollar planned gift. And it's easy for folks to miss because it's much harder to see the gifts that you don't get than the ones you do. And so a lot of our work has been retraining nonprofit leaders on how to think about this in a way to to really capture the great wealth transfer, which will be transformative for many organizations. So let's go back to your time working on the Obama campaign. Um, You said you were really focused on making it easier to give the smaller gifts. Can you give us some examples of that? Because as I'm hearing you talk, I am, I knew this before, but it's amazing to hear it again, that it does start with the small gifts. It starts with the annual gifts. It starts with the the pattern and the repetition that people have giving year after year. Um, so what were ways that you did make it easier via email? One example, and I was working with a team out of Washington, D.C. after the president had been elected, but the email list continues and obviously the midterm elections and passing health care reform and all these things need a lot of money. So we have about 10 million people on the email list. And one thing I remember distinctly as an experiment, which was sort of interesting, is separate from the email outreach, having the president's picture on a credit card form drove donations up by something like 15%. And that's wild. We never expected it. You put all this time into writing a great email, you get it edited. By the time Barack is president, it means the approval process for sending things out to 10 million people is pretty arduous and painful. And yet having this picture on the credit card form made everything 15% better. And then we realized that not only is, does that matter, but if the president was facing the credit card form, as opposed to facing away from it, that was another 15% shift. Wow. And so you learn things like that, that actually at scale, you can uncover. So that was really interesting. Other things we learned, it's important for people to feel a close connection. Um, we really spent a lot of time cultivating different voices for different senders. So obviously you had the president, but at that point you had a few of the campaign advisors who would talk about the strategy. Um, President Obama wasn't really the strategy guy. He was the vision guy, right? Michelle was sort of the more folksy, connected, values-based person. We had someone who was our our head of organizing who would talk very brass tacks about needing hosts for house parties and contributing for things like snacks and volunteer buses. And you develop these different personalities. And so you don't speak from the Obama campaign or the White House or the Democratic National Committee. You speak as a one-to-one person. 
And we really cultivated these folks as characters and it was true to them, right? It wasn't fictionalized. Mm -hmm. But even, you know, now Free Will does a lot of webinars and we're doing one tomorrow. Uh, we're doing a, a training tomorrow for some of our partners around effective stock giving. And I'm doing this with one of my colleagues. And in that world, I have a distinct role to play. I'm, I will be talking about some of the, the macro trends in the overall economic landscape, what it's likely to mean for fundraising. And then my colleague Bree is coming on and saying, here's exactly what we've been working on in our research lab. This is the experiments we run. This is the result. This is what you should do about it. And that's her role. And so really having this division of voices can be helpful. So if you're at a college, you might think about what does the president say, but also what does the head of advancement say? What does the, what does the athletic director say? And really thinking about these different voices as opposed to just sending everything from Georgetown, which is my alma mater or Columbia or something else. We often send things from volunteers, and I do think that we try to think in that way, but I love the idea of messaging from members of senior leadership. Um, who do you typically recommend should be doing the messaging around plan giving? Oh, it's a great question. Well, well, volunteers or other plan giving donors is a great outcome. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you have someone who's made a gift, share why they chose to make the gift, why they chose to include it. Right, And those stories of people who are alive and have chosen to make this gift are, are more powerful than someone who's passed away mm -hmm. um, because people don't see themselves in the person who's passed away. So that's a really good avenue. Um, someone who is potentially the head of the endowment and can talk about what a planned gift does in perpetuity. That's really exciting. That's really fun. Um, someone who's a specific program manager who can talk about the role that plan give a, a plan give that was in realized plays and how it's now feeding X amount of people or serving this many students, that can be really useful. Um, but I do think either highlighting uh, someone who's already made this gift or having it from that person themselves is potentially the most powerful. So let's go back to, you know, your passion around impact particularly global impact. We started talking a little bit about scalability and I will admit I, I am a little bit skeptical as someone who works in major gifts and is working with individuals. I, I am nervous around creating systems even though I know they need to exist. Like I know that is something that I need to work through. Um, I'm just so curious, have you found that the idea of scalability has been a barrier or do you think it's been an opportunity? Have your clients embraced this or have they been like me and been a little bit skeptical? They've really embraced it. And some of them started skeptical and then have embraced it. And it's a pretty simple conversation. You might say, it's really important to me to have one-on-one -on -one lunch with the people that I want to leave a plan gift. And I might say, that sounds great. That's a great process. How many people do you have on your email list? Or how many alumni do you have of your school? And you know, someone at a mid-major college might say, we have 80,000 living alumni. And we'll say, great. How many of them have you had lunch with this year? And they'll say 20. <laughs> you say, great. What is your plan for the others? You know, 79,000, et cetera. Yeah. And, and so it's not replacing one-on-one -on -one conversations. And if you tell me that you have a in-person meeting with every single one of your donors and you can walk them through exactly how to give in these complex ways they're going to generate much bigger gifts great that's a great plan do you 
right? But if <laughs> but if you're if you're treating Can you be in five places at once. <laughs> exactly. If you're treating eight people like royalty and the other 99.9% of your donors, you're not really giving them the opportunity to make these sorts of transformational gifts. Um, and transformational can be a wide range of of dollar amounts or or asset amounts. Then you know you're probably underserving folks because these people, right? Your donors are counting on you to be the conduit for the impact they want to have. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really good opportunity for everybody. I love that I asked you that because that was an amazing answer. I think you can always lean on the data, right? Exactly. So as you know, I work at a K through 12 independent school and our families, our parents are in a lot of cases under 50. And I know that typically I, I think it's 50 and above that can document a bequest. Is that true? It depends on the organization. Anyone can document a bequest, right? There's no legal requirement one way or another. Some organizations won't quote unquote count it unless someone is over 80 or 70 or 60 or 50. Some organizations will count it no matter what. So okay. it's really a good avenue for anybody. I'm trying, there was somewhere that I worked that that was the number. Um, it's it's foggy for me now, but what are you seeing with the, those prospects that are in the younger years what kinds of opportunities are you seeing with younger alumni bases and in some cases parents and how can you help them understand options beyond cash as you do your outreach? Yeah, it's a great question. So starting with plan giving, certainly, you know, a million dollar plan gift from a 95 year old is different than a million dollar plan gift from a 40 year old. And so we'll just name that. Now, a few things to consider on plan giving on those folks. The first one is everybody needs an estate plan and your 45 year old, your 50 year old, your 40 year old may not have one. So it's a really strong if you have kids, service. right? Like exactly. you need to have especially a plan. if you have kids, right? And so making it a real important asset, um, that's really valuable. Um, second piece is there's some really interesting research from our friend, Dr. Russell James, who some of your listeners, listeners will know is an academic out at Texas Tech in Lubbock and, and does a lot of great work on plan giving. And what he's realized is that when people make a plan gift, their annual giving actually goes up over the next five years by about 75%, because they've really been brought closer to the organization. So that's a big benefit. But also you might think plan giving isn't our major focus for 45 year olds, and you might be right. And so what, what should you think about with someone like that? Well, one of the fastest growing types of philanthropy is around qualified charitable distributions, but that's for folks over 70 or 72. So really that 40 year old group, you know, they're really the oldest millennials, the younger, youngest Gen X folks, they have a lot of investment in stocks. And a lot of them started investing in, in you know, the mid part of the last decade and have a lot of appreciated assets. And so stock giving is one of the best avenues for, for parents in the K through 12 world, for young alumni. Those gifts, I think our, our average stock gift is around $10,000 right now. And for many people, the average cash gift is about $100 or $150, sometimes less. And so moving some of your donors to stock giving will, will result in just significantly larger total giving from exactly the same number of donors. Really, really valuable. Also, a lot of tax savings for the donors because they avoid all capital gains taxes. So that's a big avenue. My guess at your K-12 school is that some of the parents are also going to be uh, crypto natives, early crypto investors, right? The ownership of crypto in America, I think is, is closing in on 20%. And that's really heavily concentrated in 
20, 30, 40 year olds. Now you might think it's all 20 year olds, but actually while a greater number of 20 year olds own crypto, more crypto in total is owned by 40 year olds because they just tend to be wealthier. And they're the folks that had money to invest in six, seven years ago. And so there's quite a few crypto billionaires and they're not necessarily gonna show up on your donor search or wealth engine reports. And so having a crypto option, really cool. And and you don't need to do a huge big campaign around crypto if you have a, a set of steady donors, which you would likely have at a K through 12. You just need to make sure that when they're going to a checkout page or a donate page, that they can they can pay with crypto. And why is that valuable? Well, it's because you know, someone that might have given you five hundred dollars is going to say, "Well, I've got a whole lot of crypto. I can easily send five thousand dollars in in Ethereum or Bitcoin." And so that can be a really good avenue, especially in that age demographic, right? If you have educated 40-year-olds, which you're likely to do if you're, you know, in private school, who, you know, they're the parents sending the kids to private school, it's a really good demographic for crypto giving. So I have a couple follow-up questions, all great comments. We'll start with the stock. I think this time last year when I was having conversations with donors, it was a great time for people to giving in to be giving in stock. People's portfolios were doing so well. And then that changed very quickly, as we know. And and even now, you know, as we look towards a down market, would you shift away from the stock conversation? Or, you know, how how do you handle that? Well, this is a good question and one we get a lot. The news reports are actually quite unhelpful here because I believe last week or the week before, for instance, was a pretty rough week for stocks. But actually, they were down only like a half a percent because the week before had been a really good week. And so what you hear is stocks down 7% from January highs, right? That That's sort of a normal headline. What they mean is it's down 7% from this one second where stocks hit a certain threshold after a very good week. And most of your donors didn't buy their stock in that one second. Right. <laughs> and so the way to follow that up is, well, do you have, are some of your assets appreciated? Oh, most of them are? Okay. Well, it still makes a lot of sense for that. Hmm. And oh, by the way, if you want the stock to keep going up, you can always buy it right back, but you've reset your cost basis. So you're avoiding a ton of taxes. So let's say that you own a bunch of Tesla stock and you're really bullish on Tesla. Well, great. Give us the Tesla stock, take some cash, go buy it right back. And suddenly you've you've wiped out all these capital gains that you would have paid. And so wow, uh, it's still a big avenue there. What I find is it's very hard to change the wind, but you can always move the sales. And so if the donor says, I believe in Apple stock so much, I never give this up. We'd say, great, go buy it right back, but if but but save all this money, right? You'll have exactly the same shares, you'll save a bunch of taxes, et cetera. Rather than saying, mm, I don't know about the Apple stock, I don't know, you still want to give it up. Just say, great. You're exactly right. Here's still a good strategy, and this is why. So my follow-up question on the crypto, full disclosure, I have not closed a crypto gift yet. I hope at some time soon I can say that I have. It, it, it does sound like it is emerging in a very big way. In the next five years, do you think that most schools will have a crypto button on their giving page? What are the uh, benefits of kind of being an early adopter there? I think it's close to 100% of schools will have the next five years. Really? And I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But there's clearly some real value in cryptocurrency. In very recent news, there's a coin called Ethereum, which is the second largest cryptocurrency after Bitcoin. 
it is actually the most donated. So it's very heavily in use in the United States. Um, it tends to be sort of a very white collar coin. It's used for things like NFT investing and, and other community elements where, where Bitcoin plays a much larger role in the developing world. And Ethereum just had some changes where now it actually uses about one two thousandth of the energy of Bitcoin. So things like energy concerns, which were wow. a major issue for some nonprofits, is really shifting quite quickly. So hats off to the folks at Ethereum. They had already previously they were using 10% of the energy and they they changed some of the mechanics behind it. And so they cut their own energy use by 99.5%, which is great so news for the environment, energy. for the world. Huge, huge. Wow. And and some of the other cryptocurrencies were already carbon neutral. It will just be part of the norm. You'll have a PayPal button, which you already have. You'll have credit card options. You know, at one point, credit, taking credit cards was novel and confusing and interesting. And, and people like us had conversations about whether credit cards were going to be a thing or even whether it was ethical to take credit card payments when someone wasn't paying it that day. They were paying it three weeks later. And so things like crypto will be the norm, especially as, as the 30, 40-year-olds really step into their own on giving. We talk a lot about the great wealth transfer earlier in this podcast and how much of that's going to go to charity. And that's an important point, but most of it's not going to charity. Most of it's going to younger Gen X, millennials, older Gen Z. And those folks are now investing heavily in crypto when they inherit money from their parents. So if you look at millennial millionaires in the United States, most of them are actually millionaires by inheritance and not through tech or crypto or finance or consulting or banking or whatever else. And so as, the, as baby boomers age and pass all that money on to your 30, 40, 50 year olds, a lot of that money is gonna be going to crypto. There's a lot of houses in Westchester or in Marin where someone's <laughs> gonna pass away, they're gonna be sold, yeah. liquidated. And a lot of that money going to the two children, the one child is going to go into crypto. And unlike, you know, by the way, unlike you know, baby boomers, the silent generation, most millennials don't have seven siblings or six siblings, which would be quite common previously. And so these inheritances get concentrated, right? So because sometimes you have you know, a couple, a married couple with only one child. And so two incomes, because a lot more women in the baby boomer generation worked than in previous generations. And I have two incomes getting funneled into one person who may not be married, may not have kids. So there'll be a lot of philanthropy coming in that direction as well. Did the previous generation reinvest their inheritances as well? Or did they, do you have any data around that? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, it's easy to miss how much wealthier generations have gotten over time. I mean, baby boomers were so much better off than their predecessors. And so certainly to some degree there was reinvestment, but the amount of wealth that was accumulated wasn't that high, mm. uh, at least at a, a large macro level. So to get back to free will, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, primarily focused on plan giving. Plan giving and complex giving. So plan giving and then real-time gifts of stock, qualified charitable distributions, and currency. As we look at the overall state of philanthropy, can you just talk us through how the paradigm has shifted from people giving on their credit cards or in cash, which we know is the most expensive way to give, versus you know, on the continuum of all of those vehicles that you just described? Are you finding that it's come to be 50-50 or more or less? I'd love to hear that breakdown. Well, bequests are still about 10% of all giving total. So a bit more of just individual contributions, not counting corporate and foundations. Now, 
cash is still the dominant way that most people give. And that is changing. And it's a flywheel effect because what happens is as more people give assets, gift officers like yourself ask about it more, which means more people do it, which means nonprofits talk about it more, et cetera. So things like qualified charitable distributions have basically tripled over the last few years. Cryptocurrency giving has grown by about 10, 15 X over the last few years, right? We see stock giving likely to go up, although reporting on that tends to be relatively poor at a macro level. So we are seeing this really big shift. Financial advisors are getting more involved. Certainly donor advised funds, as you probably know, have taken off. And so that's another alternate avenue. And, and what many people miss is that about two thirds of everything going into donor advised funds is appreciated assets and not cash. Mm-hmm. So that's a common misconception. And people, you know, so many people say, oh, donor advised funds have taken all our money. You know, why is this happening to us? Well, what's happening is that Fidelity and Vanguard and Schwab and others make it really easy to give. Stuff. That's why donor advised funds have grown so much. And so the way to combat that is one, ask for donations out of donor advised funds, but two, make it really easy to give you non-cash assets so that they think about it first, right? If someone has appreciated assets, but they don't know that your school takes stock gifts, but they do know they can dump it into their Fidelity account for some something maybe later on, then they'll do it. But if you come and say, look, this is your priority, send it here, we'll make it really easy for you, then it's a different ballgame. Interesting. So what what would you, I know you mentioned a couple of the increases and decreases, but do you know now in 2022 what the breakdown is? In terms of non-cash assets, I don't. It, it's very difficult to get good reporting on this because a lot of it will just show up in 990s all as individual contributions. And so I would I would still bet that you know the vast majority of everything is in cash gifts. I think I've seen some estimates that about 15 to 20% of all giving maybe non-cash assets. But for instance, looking at a donor advised fund where the reporting is a lot better because Fidelity is doing all of it, all the intake and then creating these really strong reports. Well, that means, you know, in their view, 65% of giving is non-cash in two thirds because it's not, not two thirds of the individual gifts, but the size of these gifts tend to be so big. And, and Fidelity has seen just enormous crypto giving as well. They'll likely do half a billion to a billion dollars in crypto intake this year, which is astounding. And one of the benefits of that is the regulatory certainty in terms of the IRS. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? People think, you know, crypto is the wild west and maybe it was six years ago, but there's been a lot of regulatory work and crypto is treated like property by the IRS. So it's a, this is an important note for, for listeners and fundraisers. It's not treated like stock. Stock has this special exemption where you don't really need uh, publicly held stock. You don't need appraisals and things like that because we all know what the, what the price of an Apple share was last Tuesday at 1.03 p.m. sharp. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's easy. Crypto also has publicly available prices, but it's not treated that way yet. And so the same way as if I had given your school a boat or a used car or a stamp collection, then you have to file a couple of forms with the IRS, letting them know that you received it. You don't have to appraise it, but you do need to make that, that small filing. And then the donor has to, if it's over $5,000 in value that, that they claim, has to get a qualified appraisal as well. So that would be true across a wide range of property gifts, but is true of crypto. But otherwise it's pretty straightforward. For organizations that take crypto, almost universally they've liquidated immediately. 
So it's actually much easier to take crypto than to take real estate, which is quite common, or cars or boats, because there's a liquid market. Right? If I drive a yacht, I don't have a yacht, but if I drove a yacht up to your school and dropped and handed you the keys, it would be a lot of work to get rid of it. Yeah. And if I if I send you Ethereum or Bitcoin, you can sell it in seconds. You know, many tools, including Free Will's crypto tool, will auto liquidate it. Hmm. And then you just have cash that you can immediately put to use to feed kids, to run programs, to hire teachers, whatever you need. And so from a acceptance policy, crypto is one of the easiest things beyond beyond stock to accept compared to all these other things that people do also accept. Real estate, you know, the downside, the potential downsides, downsides of accepting real estate vastly outstrip any potential downsides of uh, accepting crypto. So what you're telling me is as soon as we can figure out how to accept this, this should be our preferred method. It's pretty good. I mean, stock and crypto <laughs> gifts will be bigger for you, better tax savings for your donors and, and frankly, aren't that challenging. Um, you know, the, the way that our tool works is to give you some insight into how we thought about it is we have a partner nonprofit called Free Will Impact. And so all the, all the crypto actually technically goes to Free Will Impact and is immediately sold. And that means that all the IRS reporting, everything else gets handled at a central location rather than you having to figure it out if you get, you know, you get three or five crypto gifts and then you have to get those things signed by your president, and mail them into the IRS, like that's just a pain. And so we centralize all of it, auto liquidate it. And so the school never even takes, you know, quote unquote ownership over the cryptocurrencies. They're just getting cash. And that's, it's been really well received. That is awesome. Patrick, you have been so informative. Is there anything that I have not asked you about that you want our listeners to know? What a good question. I'll say this because I think it's the most important academic research and fundraising that's underappreciated. Um, back to our friend, Dr. Russell James. He did this research looking at a million IRS records of nonprofits over a five-year span to say, hey, what, what makes nonprofits grow or not grow in revenue? Right? There must be some patterns. And it turns out there is. Organizations that take appreciated assets or any non-cash gifts tend to grow about five or six times faster than organizations that just take cash. And that's the average across a million nonprofits. For organizations that are smaller, you know, in the 100,000 to 600,000, 600,000, a million, a million to 2 million, those effects are even more pronounced. It's literally the thing that will step change your fundraising. And so we just strongly encourage organizations to, to really take a hard look on how to do it. It can be a little scary at first, and then people are usually relieved to figure out how actually easy it is. That's an incredible statistic. Well, I would love to close with my signature question. Patrick, what do you know for sure? I knew this was coming. <laughs> I think the thing I've learned along the way with change.org, with free will, with even this podcast is that, that things are just better when you try to do big things with really wonderful groups of people. There've been very few moments in activities and sports, which I'm not very good at, but still enjoy in my professional life in in volunteerism, very few of the best moments have been alone. And so the joy of trying to do something worth doing with a group of people is unparalleled. And I'm sure that many of your listeners know that, but it's always worth reflecting on. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to have you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in. 
If you missed it, I did an Instagram Live with Patrick yesterday, which is on my Instagram account at devdebrief. You can also check out Free Will's new account at freewillhq. Feel free to watch and learn more tidbits and information and send in any questions you may have. Thank you so much and have a great week.